This episode is brought to you by Levitt Pavilion. This summer, check out one of my favorite outdoor concert venues in Denver, Levitt Pavilion. May through October, Levitt is offering ticketed and totally free all-ages concerts. I feel like we just go to anything that's free because it's like the kids can be at the show and it's people aren't weird about it and you can like bring a picnic. It's awesome. Some of the free shows this season include Iskali, Melvin Seals, War and Treaty, Sunny War, Chali Tuna, and more. To RSVP for free shows and buy tickets, plus see the full concert schedule, go to levittdenver.org. That's levittdenver.org. Today on CityCast Denver. Mayor Mike Johnston really did not want to order his first sweep of a homeless encampment last week. But he did. So me and producer Paul Caroli are talking about why he did it, how it went, and what it means for Mayor Mike's big promise to end homelessness. Plus, more bike lane drama and it's peach season. Today is Tuesday, August 8th. I'm Bree Davies, and here's what Denver's talking about. Hi, Paul. Good morning, Bree. I was thinking about you last night when I was oh. in the depths of ordering clothes on Uniqlo late at night, and I almost ordered you a shirt that said Pizza Nista. <laughs> they have, I would like, love that. Uniqlo is my favorite. Is it? Okay. Yeah, oh, it's great. They have like random graphic tees, you know? Mm-hmm. And I just came across these the series they have of Pizza Nista, which I'm assuming is a take on like Maxinista. Or Fashionista. Fashionista. Yeah. So, I'm a Pizza Nista. Are you a Pizza Nista? Yeah, that feels right to me. Okay. If it's $9.90, I might go back and order it. That's their sale price. Wish we still had that Uniqlo on 16th Street Mall. I didn't mourn it in the moment. And now I realize I should have. You were correct. Yeah. It was a great store. It was a nice store. But we're not talking about the 60th Street Mall for the first time on this show today. <laughs> we're going to do a vibe check. Um, but Paul, I have to divert to you because I spent the weekend being held hostage by my two-year-old. Yes. Uh, what's the vibe like in the city right now? Uh, the vibe's good. Vibe is good. It's Palisade Peach season. Uh, that was that was the big thing for me uh, the last few days. I think it's really happening. I had tried to buy some maybe a week ago, and they were a little Not small, ready. and they were you know they got ripe, but they weren't quite. They weren't the what you expect you know, every year. Juice a nice running juicy. down your face, just like oh, I'm, I'm becoming this peach right now. They're a heavy. They're a heavy fruit when they're really good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. And they're, they're getting there. I, I still don't think we're peaking. I still think we have some time to go, yeah. but like now is the time to go buy too many peaches and indulge. You are a peach freak. I know this oh, about I am. you. I am. I love it. It's my favorite time of year. Um, where do you get your, this is the conundrum for me is if you're, if you don't have a connect, where do you get your peaches? There, you know, there's a good farm stand at the where um, where Leedsdale turns into Parker, way down yeah. in southeast near me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other farm stand near me is one of the peaches that's supplied by the 911 Truther Peach Farm out in Palisade. <laughs> oh, I forgot that which exists. I will bring up every time peaches come up because I think people <laughs> should know. You know, maybe that's not the place that you want to support. You should just know to make a better informed decision. Um, we'll link to that story in the show notes. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would I would love to know. I would love to know other ones. We've, we. We've been to the City Park uh, Farmer's Market, been to Pearl Street. They're all good, but you know, are there better ones? Are there 
I always fun, just special like, ones? catch a random person selling them out of the back of their truck at like a gas really? station usually. Mm. But again, with the demise of Twitter, this is one of those sad hyper local things I always look forward to is I could just put a call out or people would start sharing peach alert, peach stand at, you know, the corner of whatever. So yeah. if you have a spot that you like consistently go to or, you know, like, let us know. Because yeah. we want to let other people know. Yeah, we want to know where the good peaches are. Where are the good Palisade peaches? Or especially if there's like a particularly good peach experience. If there's like a roadside stand that like really does it up and they want oh. it to be an experience for you. I like I it if it comes one. in like a cute little basket uh-huh. or something. I feel yeah. you. I've yeah. bought from That's fun. I've bought from someone before because of the cute basket. So. Well, well, hit us up on the uh, the peach Palisade, Palisade Pe- Peach Hotline, of course. Uh, 720-500-5418. Uh, leave us a message. Leave us your name, your neighborhood. We'll play it on the show. We'll share it. We'll get those good, good peaches. Some some more attention. Sounds great. The number again is 720-500-5418. Palisade Peach Hotline. Okay. Uh, but we got to talk about what else I think the city is definitely talking about this week. And I think the biggest story for us for sure of the last seven days is a conversation around um, the first sweep of a homeless encampment under the Johnston administration. There was a lot of press coverage of this in because yes. we've seen, obviously, we've seen press coverage of sweeps before, but this was monumental because it was the first one under the Johnston administration, which, I mean, it, I kind of want to start there, Paul. What what was there, what was uh, Mayor Johnston's take or what is his stance on the sweeps to begin with? Well, his stance is a little bit, it's nuanced. Um, and I think there's two big differences with the Hancock administration and you're totally right. I mean, there were sweeps that happened under Hancock. I read in this Denverite story that there were like 17 sweeps in the last few years since 2019, the pandemic, they had a pause, but what Johnston says and what he's doing differently, uh, like I said, two things, one, he says he's not doing sweeps until he has housing available to offer people that he is moving along, that he is ordering to be moved along. At the same time, he's saying he will order sweeps if there are exceptional cases uh, related to health and safety. So public health. So, but those are like two opposing things, if, if you think about it, because if you don't have housing, he's still going to enforce them if the yeah. the health issue is, is pr- present. Yeah, well, right? as we learned on Friday... He's not going to wait until there's housing available if there's a rat infestation at a camp. That's the justification for the first sweep that went down on Friday morning. Well, and I just want to point something. So Kyle Harris, uh, Denver, our friend at Denverite, did two really great pieces on this. He did one that was sort of in the moment, what was happening or what was going to happen. And then he did one post where he talked to folks uh, that were in the midst of the sweep. And something that Kyle said was, it's literally moving an entire block of people and all their belongings from where they are to anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where I struggle is, I know he doesn't have housing ready. Where did he think people were going to go? Well, I think that brings us to the other big difference with the Hancock administration, which is the attitude. Sure. Because they know there's nowhere to go. All of these quotes from Johnston, who himself was there on Friday morning, from his senior leadership team, who were all there on Friday morning, that is from city council people, they know and they don't like what they were doing, but they were there doing it. They were like, oh, this is, you know, we're not, we don't, we don't want to be doing this kind of sweep where we can't offer people housing. We want to be able to offer people an option. This time we can't. 
we can't do it because there was this rat infestation that we needed to act on. Mm. We needed this to be safer for everybody, I guess. I, yeah. I mean, I, it is what it is, I guess, in that moment. I don't, I don't know how I would respond if I was someone being swept and then being like, so where do I go? You know, and then there's this yeah. fight with, or this pushback on like, well, I, one gentleman that Kyle talked to was like, I don't want to go to the shelter because then I can't be with my wife or I can't be with my dog or I've uh, been, you know, I've had issues in the shelter where someone has stolen from me. So I am curious to see what the next step is, because I do still have faith that the Johnson administration, like you said, is acknowledging the problem in a different way. But we're still seeing the same outcome right now, just in this moment. So far. I mean, <laughs> Mike Johnson said he was going to end homelessness in his first term. Right. It's a very long lofty goal. We're four weeks in. He hasn't done it yet. Yes. Which I wouldn't <laughs> expect anyone because if he had, then it, it would, would be, be like, impossible. what was really going on and, here? And it's kind of hard for us because like we want to stay on it. We want to pay attention and look at these details. And yeah, we noticed there've been some things going wrong, like this sort of incoherent policy on when the sweeps are going to happen. But at the same time, there are also really positive changes here. Like there, he's setting the groundwork, I think, for, for something that could be really big. There was one detail in uh, the Denverite story that I really loved, which was uh, Mike Johnston was collecting phone numbers Thursday night before the sweep. He went out to 22nd and Stout where this sweep happened and he was meeting people. He was just talking to people, getting to know people who were living there. He was collecting phone numbers and building relationships. And I think that's going to really, really pay off. That's something also that we can follow up on. Right? Yeah. Like Hopefully, the, yeah. That's where the accountability component can be. Because the, I was a little on the fence about this. The Johnson administration, well, I guess Mike Johnson himself, like you said, was going out pre-sweep to talk to people. Yeah. And so you think that that was really him kind of trying to set a precedence like I actually am invested in this? I think that's the attitude change again. That's okay. that's him saying he knows he's not doing what he said he's going to do. He knows he's not doing what he wants to be doing. He doesn't have housing to offer people, but he's going to be there. He's going to be trying to build relationships. He's going to try to make good with people. He's going to keep in touch. And when there is housing available, I think he's hoping that he'll be able to build on those relationships and maybe get people to to move into a new situation. So speaking of uh, moving folks into a new situation, um, it, it, I think the issue, right, is that there isn't anything available at this moment. But yes. what does the Johnson administration have in process right now in terms of making good on their promise to house folks? Well, well, they hit the ground running four weeks ago when they came into office. This was his main focus. He hired a whole bunch of people, dozens of people, um, to work on this big ambitious plan. Um, and I think what they did was start negotiating on land and buildings. Cause he, he talked about four different types of, of sites and of buildings that they were looking for to convert into these micro communities, the real centerpiece of this plan to end homelessness. And, um, one deal seems to already be in place. Okay. And this was announced a couple of weeks ago, but it looks like the Denver Housing Authority is going to be able to buy the Best Western Hotel in Central Park, which is 194 housing units just right off the exchange of the 270 and the 70 um, for about $26 million. I don't know if that's cheap or not, or I have no idea, because I'm assuming they're going to have to do some work on those too, because I these are hotel so rooms. Yeah. I don't know if they're going to turn them into sort of efficiency studios or yeah and then there's what kinds seen. of support are you going to have on site because that's right. another big thing is like we want there to be support services so this can actually be useful for people to get back up on their feet again 
Yeah, which I think it, I think most folks will tell you who work in this space is crucial to this six, the to the success of these spaces. Just again, just looking back at these, these these sort of mini profiles that Kyle Harris did of some of the folks that were at the camp. There was a gentleman that had survived being through multiple foster homes, so he didn't trust these spaces where they were sort of controlled by you know by city entities. There was a gentleman, like I said, who's who was trying to be reunited with his wife. So like there's, and there was someone that was struggling with uh, open wounds from a drug use issue. So that's where the supportive wraparound services are so crucial. And that's where I'm hoping the Johnson administration really makes good is not just the housing part, but the providing folks with the things they need to get to that next step to keep yourself housed. Yeah, to build trust. Yeah. Because that, that trust issue is also really important here. Like if for anyone, is, if you've ever talked to somebody who's living on the street or if you ever lived on your street yourself, you know there's a big barrier between yeah. that community and that lifestyle and, you know, normal folks, Quote, you know, yeah. people who live in homes, own homes, rent, rent apartments. Yeah, it is a very disparate world the way we lots see of these, distrust this and the way we view each other i think is is really something i struggle with myself too it's just like noticing like what social mores we think are appropriate and how we're supposed to act and what mm -hmm. we're supposed to do and um i hope that this empathy spreads through the city too yeah i think so i mean that's real leadership that's how you that's how you change hearts and minds and get buy-in for even more bigger projects is by doing showing what you think what should be done and, and then doing it. Yeah. That's why I think these phone numbers, getting phone numbers I'm the night before was so but, cool. But also I think unhoused folks might tell you too. Yeah. But what if my phone gets stolen? I hear this yeah. story so often, so often my phone was stolen. My phone was lost. You know, I didn't pay my phone bill. So yeah, I'm, that might also just be a good entry point for the mayor to understand what some unhoused folks are doing and why it's not just so easy to get housed. It's not just so easy to go get a job, you know, yeah. the stuff that a lot of housed folks tell people who are unhoused, why don't you just do this? And maybe that is, that might be a really, a really uh, eye-opening first step for the mayor himself, mm -hmm. which I mm -hmm. admire that he's really thinking about that. Um, but Paul, I want to go back really quick. So he, he, uh, I'm sorry, Mayor Johnston said he was going to end homelessness in his first term. That's in yes. the next four years. But what did he promise by the end of this year? Well, specifically, he's promised a thousand housing units by the end of the calendar year. So that 194 units, that puts us about 20, 20% of the way there already for $26 million. We're getting a little bit of a sense of the price here, but also, you know, landowners and people who own uh, buildings, they know that the Johnson administration is going out and looking for deals like this. So they've got a little bit more leverage. Yeah. And I think the mayor's probably dealing with that right now. Well, and also just the struggle that exists to bring housing to neighborhoods that don't necessarily want housing for oh boy. Yes. folks on the margins. We'll be watching that one. For sure. For sure. But anyway, 806 housing units to go okay. for 2023. I've I've got high hopes. I think we could get, I hope, I think the Johnson administration could get there by the end of the year. I hope so too. Well, uh, let's take a quick break before we come back to one more story and then we will hear from you all, our listeners. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Wine Board. Because the wine community here is like surprisingly robust. I mean, think about Bigsby's Folly and Infinite Monkey Theorem here in Denver alone. And there are urban wineries all across the Front Range. Then there's the Western Slope, Peonia, I mean, Palisade, hello, Palisade Wine, are you kidding me? It didn't used to really be a thing, but from what I hear, it's very much a thing now. 
There are more than 165 wineries across Colorado to explore, and they produce all sorts of wine that reflect our unique culture and climate. So finding a label that you're going to love is easy, no matter where your adventure takes you. Discover it for yourself and support local winemakers at coloradowine.com. That's coloradowine.com. This episode is brought to you by the Denver Botanic Gardens. It's time for the 75th annual spring plant sale at the Denver Botanic Gardens. Mark your calendars for Friday and Saturday, May 10th and 11th. Admission is free, but you must register in advance at botanicgardens.org. Registering my husband, Greg, right now for the plants I want him to pick out and plant in our yard for me. Shop from 15 different plant divisions, including annuals, houseplants, herbs and veggies, and specialties like aquatics, container garden in a bag, and plants grown right at the gardens. The garden's horticulture staff will be on site to answer any and all plant questions you may have. This sale emphasizes water smart and native plants that are perfect for our semi-arid climate. They'll be great for a beautiful landscape that doesn't require a bunch of water. For more details, registration information, and a catalog of available plants, go to botanicgardens.org. That's botanicgardens.org. All right, we're back. Uh, for our next topic, we're following up on a neighborhood fight in the Congress Park Country Club Cap Hill area that we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, we were talking about these new bollards, which are like these PVC pipes that the city came and stuck into the ground around uh, the bike lanes on the 7th Avenue Park Lane or the 7th Avenue Parkway. Um, and the whole idea was to make it safer for bicyclists. Mm -hmm. This is street infrastructure to shift the balance of power, make it a little bit more inconvenient for drivers and a little bit safer so bicyclists don't die as much. Um, Bree, <laughs> this has been on your mind. Oh my gosh, Paul, because <clears throat> another story came out uh, last week um, Westward mm -hmm. reported that there was a, a neighborhood issue over some bollards put down at 14th and Franklin. Yeah. I used to live at 14th and Franklin. That's where my first apartment was. Um, it, it The issue here was uh, folks, folks think that some, again, it's about aesthetics. These are ugly, whatever. Um, but also, I guess the idea was, or the planning was from the city was to divert some traffic away from the street so that it was just safer for cyclists. So it was like kind of cutting off access one direction for cars. Yeah. And people did not like that. Yeah. It sounded very similar to the 7th <sighs> Avenue Parkway situation. Yeah. And I just have to say, since we first talked about that issue, Paul, it has been on my mind because I think about other infrastructure projects across the city and how they have impacted neighborhoods. And in my neighborhood, um, 6th Avenue, runs directly through it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are houses where you can see where the street has been literally torn apart and the highway went through it because there's a giant wall up next to your house. And I think about the I-70 expansion and what the GES folks went through trying to fight back on that because hundreds of people lost their homes, lost their homes. So yeah. I guess what I'm what I'm trying to get at here is City infrastructure changes as cities grow. We know this. The bike infrastructure stuff is a move in the right direction. And I'm sorry that some folks find it ugly, but like you didn't have to deal with a highway coming through your neighborhood. That's not only ugly, it's disruptive. It had me thinking about the Torres family in Globeville who lost their home twice to eminent domain for city projects. Can you imagine losing your home? Like, 
just like a little, just add a little gravity to the situation and think, is a couple bollards on my street that are aesthetically unpleasing really that bad? Or could I have had this situation happen to me? Like the bollards are trying to make space for climate friendly, pedestrian friendly, safer infrastructure for human beings. I would kill to have this in my neighborhood. I granted you put bollards on my street, people will just run them over. But like <laughs> the car is king in my neighborhood. I live on the west side. It's mm-hmm. the number one reason I don't want to live there is that um the traffic is terrifying and people speed. Yeah. These bollards are also meant to slow traffic down so that cars are more aware that there are bikes on the road. So just like I just want folks to think a little bit. Like just pull back. Look at a bigger picture. What would you rather have? <laughs> more space for cars or safer space for pedestrians. I'm sorry if it's ugly. I really am. But I think that this is one step on the way to better infrastructure. Right, Paul? Yeah. Wouldn't you say bollards are not the permanent solution? Well, that's a big part of this too. Is like there's this big fight is happening over this bollards thing, but they're just temporary. Right. Like I learned this after we initially talked about it was this is just like sort of a pilot to see how the street flow could change because they're planning to build permanent infrastructure. And the street flow has to change. We have to change it. We have to be the generation, the time frame of the city that changes it because we can't wait another 20 years. Like I'm thinking about the infrastructure that had to change when we had streetcars. Like things change all the time and we're in a city that's growing and changing. And I think sometimes it's going to be uncomfortable. Sometimes it's going to be harder. But maybe like you said, I think this is something that is kind of in a denial space for a lot of us is it uh, it's to make it harder to drive. It is explicitly that, yes. to make it more inconvenient <laughs> yeah. to drive. And I would also just say, just a little nitpicky of this part where I worked in urban planning. If you are a person that believes that the city did not reach out to you and to have a conversation about this, um, get in touch with your neighborhood organization. They do. They The city does work really hard to connect with everyone in the neighborhood that they possibly can, and they can't reach everybody. But if you're a little bit more tuned into your neighborhood, you can be aware that these changes are happening and have some input, but also it would maybe open you up to more conversations with folks that will be utilizing those bike lanes. Yeah. It just... Yeah, and now's the time because this, this permanent infrastructure is going to go in pretty soon. So if you want to have a say in how that looks and how it actually is going to like function... But also be a part of the conversation at the same time, as much as you want to talk about it, maybe listen, because Mm -hmm. this is the other problem is like sometimes neighborhood organizations become the strong arm to stop this kind of infrastructure change. And this has happened in Capitol Hill before there were supposed to be north south bike lanes put in, but it failed (sighs) because the neighborhood said no, which is like. I mean, have you, you've driven around Capitol Hill. It sucks to drive. It would be great if we had more options for things other than cars. And like, I don't know. I just, I just want us to think a little bit bigger picture and also just be aware of what the privilege you have in the neighborhood you live in and what that provides you. Because my neighborhood, we don't have those same privileges to complain about bollards. The, the comparison you made about the I-70 expansion is so on point. I haven't been able to forget that. That's that's going to stick with me, I think. Community activists worked for year, for decades to stop that stuff from happening in their neighborhoods and they couldn't stop it. So just think like, maybe I'm lucky that the infrastructure my neighborhood gets is for bicycles and not for semis. <laughs> Thank you. 
Um, all right. Well, we should probably move on to our next segment, which is listener feedback. Um, you all, our brilliant and hilarious listeners, are always writing in and leaving us cool voicemails and asking questions. And um, we got a couple to talk about today that are tied together with a theme that I think I'll call Paul was wrong. <laughs> what was Paul wrong about now? <laughs> Reed, you want to read these? Yeah, I do. Uh, okay, so we have a comment from Linda S. She writes, Hey, CityCast team, I am a longtime listener and a fan of your work, but I have to say, you were unnecessarily harsh to Carpio Sanguinetti Park in your episode on August Things to Do. All right, so this was an event you proposed. I a did. A noise show that happened this past Saturday, Ugh. and you said it was happening in this former sewage treatment plant. Which I said was decommissioned yes. in the 60s. You 60s, Paul. Long time ago. And I said it was a beautiful park where uh, graffiti artists had been painting for many years. Mm -hmm. And I think you mischaracterized it as like a wasteland. And to it's be the fair- the picture in my mind at the time, but yes. And I, I also just want to say, I didn't get to go to that noise show, but I saw videos from it and it looked like so much fun and such a perfect space for this. So Paul, you were wrong. I'm going to, you want me to share what Linda Please. wanted you to know? Yes. Linda says, yes, the space was a former wastewater facility. Yes, folks use it to sharpen their graffiti skills, but it's an open space and a natural environment in an area of the city that sorely needed it. I'm glad there are events there, even if noise is not my jam. Linda, I would push back. Noise might be your jam. Hmm. I would say next listening lawn, go try it out. I want to say too, because noise encompasses so many genres. There were saxophone players there. There, I mean, it was not just what I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Okay. Anyway, so Linda also says, so to keep referring to it as a sewage treatment plant felt rough. The park is on the space of a former farm. That's where the Sanguinetti part came from, the family who owned it. And Carpio comes from Sal Carpio. I thought that. A longtime city councilman and one of the city's first elected Latino leaders who represented the north side. Paul, you might remember Sal Carpio's name because he was the person that negotiated the Martinez Park. Was it the Jerry Martinez Park? Yeah. Baker? It's a long story. A long story. Anyway. Um, oh, but he, he <laughs> to be fully cool transparent, stuff. Sal Carpio is Linda's cousin. <laughs> what well, that's nice. That's a, that's a Denver story if I ever heard it. Well, I just want to say thank you. Yes, thank you for writing Linda. in, Linda. You are so right. Um, Atlas Paul Obscura has a great page up about the Carpio Sanguinetti Park and uh, lots of pictures. It is really cool. I would like to see it now. I regret missing the noise show. I'll keep you apprised of the next listening lawn at Sanguin Carpio Sanguinetti Park. Thank Paul. you. Thank You're you. welcome. Shall we hear another one? Yep. Patrick B. writes, longtime listener, first time emailer. Ford, as in Harrison Ford, has a much bigger connection to aviation than simply piloting fictional planes in the movies. He has been a pilot for a long time. Most notably, he has done a lot of humanitarian work with it, including fighting wildfires and rescuing hikers. And he's had his fair share of crashes. Anyway, he's an accomplished pilot and aviation enthusiast, and that's why he's featured in the museum. So uh, Patrick's talking about the Wings Over the Rockies Museum. We had talked about it last week because Wings Over the Rockies was doing this awesome... Is that a beer? It's like a beer, beer event. Yeah. And mm -hmm. they have a Harrison Ford theater. And Paul. Which I scoffed at. Paul scoffed at and said, oh, because he flew. The Millennium you know Falcon. Okay. I was like, most you famously. To, you need to do this yes. part. Yes. Oh, well, Patrick, you're right. I thank you for sending some links. I stand corrected. Harrison Ford 
is in fact a lifelong aviation enthusiast, even before he was a super rich guy and it became just, you know, a rich guy hobby. Hey, he fought wildfires and rescued hikers, Paul. He he did some cool stuff. Uh, he That's has cool. flown in Wyoming. I guess he likes the de Havilland Canada DHC2 Beaver model of plane. Um, this is all from livinglegendsofaviation.com. However, the same website says, most people worldwide know Harrison Ford for his blockbuster starring movies <laughs> such as Han Solo in Star Wars, Indiana Jones, the Indiana Jones film series, Rick Deckard in Blade Runner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Harrison Ford, his aviation is still, I would contend, best known uh, from the seat of his famous starship, the Millennium Falcon. I don't know. I'm with Patrick B. on this one. He's a humanitarian. I I did not know that about Harrison Ford. I think that's cool. Thanks for writing in, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, that was really helpful. Thank you, Patrick. So at the end of the Tuesday show, we always ask you all a question because we want to hear from you. So um, as we stated at the top of the show, we want to know where do you get your Palisade peaches? Do you have like, do you have a cousin? Do you have a friend? As Justine would say, do you know somebody that like it just falls off the back of the truck somewhere? <laughs> But seriously, um, it kind of is like, it feels like a little spotty every year. I'm always trying to guess where I might get mm -hmm. them. So if you have like a, a consistent Palisade Peach Connect hookup plug, let us know. Call the Palisade Peach hotline, 720-500-5418. Again, you can call us. We honestly, we love voicemails. So please leave us your name and neighborhood. But if you're not really into talking, you can also text us at that number, 720-500-5418. Or you can email us denver at citycast.fm okay. i can't wait to hear what people have to say oh my god i'm sure there's going to be good stuff i've never heard of i am dying i'm so i'm so curious and this is like crowdsourcing at its best yeah. is when you can find the hyper local stuff because our listeners they know you guys know well paul thanks so much for joining me thanks Bree. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed this show, why not take a minute to tell your Palisade Peach hookup about us? Rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter, Hey Denver, at denver.citycast.fm. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye-bye. Hot Palisade, hot, it's peach season. <laughs>